Progressive Rugby League. G'day friends in Rugby League Syntax, John O'Duncan back with you. Nice to caress your auditory receptors once again. Whew, it's wild in here. Another PRL book club for you today. You know, in the hundred odd episodes of this little podcast, there have been 12, count them, book club episodes. I'm kind of chuffed by that number. Doing this podcast has got me reading books again. And not just Rugby League books, I'm proud to say I've regained book reading fitness after many, many years and I have the game of Rugby League to thank. Take this as one of those inspirational before and after life improvement tweets. Thank you, thank you. You are too kind. And so, to get us to the cool baker's dozen of rugby league book clubs, we've gone for a seminal tome, one that always, and I mean always, makes the list of the best rugby league books of all time. I'm talking about At the George and Other Essays on Rugby League by Geoffrey Morehouse. At the George is a collection of reflections through Geoffrey Morehouse's long-running love affair with rugby league. It travels with him from his Central Park home away from home in Wigan, around the UK heartlands before sweeping across time and climate zones to the east coast of Australia and west coast of New Zealand. And while this is a book that wears its love of rugby league on its sleeve, don't think that it's simply a sonnet, an ode to the 13-a-site code. It's far more interesting than that. As someone who wasn't born into the game, Morehouse is able to combine the objective, perceptive eye of an outsider with a warmth that comes from decades of admiration for his adopted sport. So... How has At The George stood up in the 30-odd years since it was originally published? Are there lessons we've missed or could still heed? How have times changed and what has that meant for rugby league in both hemispheres? Well, I did consider trying to get Jeffrey Morehouse online to discuss from beyond the grave. He passed in 2009, but turns out Wi-Fi ain't so sturdy in the great unknown. And so, as an alternative, to be honest, there was only one option I considered. Phil Kaplan is a rugby league literature connoisseur. And as an author, columnist, editor, and publisher of quality rugby league writing over many, many years, there are few who have done more to support the rugby league written word than he. Phil Kaplan is founder and director at Scratching Shed Publishing, which I've learned has actually put out a few of the books we've featured on Perio Book Club. And Phil has also authored several books himself, including On the History of Rugby League in Leeds and accounts of key personalities in the game, such as Jamie Peacock. And of course, his smooth and well-maintained fingertips are all over one of the best rugby league magazines, and one of the best podcasts going around through the 4020 juggernaut. And so it's a real pleasure to welcome the eminently qualified and incalculably generous Phil Kaplan to the Progressive Rugby League podcast to reflect on the formidable At The George by Jeffrey Morehouse. Phil, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Well, well thank you. I just had to double check that that was me you were talking about. <laughs> it definitely is, Phil. Real, real pleasure to have you on. It's an honour to be part of this Fabulous. Thank you very much. I thought it might be worth starting off by asking you to provide a bit of context for our chat, particularly for those of us outside the UK who wouldn't be overly familiar with the book or the author. So, Phil, who was Geoffrey Morehouse and why do you think this book is so generously remembered? Well, one of his feature editors said of him that he was quiet, brooding, very northern and fascinated by time, place and people. Mm. And his style was described as Ryan Precise, which I think sort of sums up what we're going to be talking about. Mm. He was born in Bolton, educated at Berry Grammar School, joined the Bolton Evening News as a journalist, then went to New Zealand for a couple of years, came back and worked for the Manchester Guardian, became their feature writer in 1963. In 1970, he decided that he wanted to predominantly write books. And most 
most of them were on travel. Um, mm. I think probably the most famous of them all, he wrote in 1974, called The Fearful Void, which was uh, his failed attempt to cross the Sahara at the age of 40. Wow. But he wrote about monks and missionaries and diplomats and lobster fishermen in New England and architecture and trains and Tudor history. In 1999, he, he wrote a book about Sydney. Mm. Um, in, in 82, he became a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Um, he lived in a place called Gale, uh, a little village on a hill in Wensleydale. And he, he switched from football, which he was passionate about, to, to rugby league, came a really, re- really big Wigan fan, wrote two books on cricket. But at the George's is possibly the one that had the most resonance because I think it was the most unexpected book that he wrote. Mm-hmm. He sort of developed a kind of niche for his writing. But it was called at the time a powerful and elegant homage to a deeply held love. Mm-hmm. It came out in 1989. It was shortlisted for the uh, inaugural William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award, but it was reissued in 2013 Mm. um, as part of the Faber Find series, and it it had a new preface by Ian Heads. And if we're talking about venerated historians of rugby league, then probably come no finer than Ian. Mm. And And I guess what Ian said about it probably describes why we're talking about it now he wrote from first acquaintance some seasons ago i believed it to be the finest book ever penned on the 13 aside game today the book remains as fresh as ever and as firmly placed on its pedestal it's a seminal work a precious treasure of the game the book is from the heart written by a man of intellect who was bowled over by what he saw one may afternoon at main road manchester back in 1946 Mm. and who never lost his affection for the game so i I guess that's the context for it all moving on to the second part of of your question it's a literary landmark for rugby league i think Mm -hmm. not just the diversity of the subject matter but the quality of the writing and that's what set a new a new standard Mm. rugby league just happened to be the backdrop what you got was a series of absolutely beautifully crafted essays and it was something we'd never had before we'd had autobiographies going back to probably the late 1950s with with such as gus risman and lewis jones they were ghost written We'd had annuals, you know, some of those attributed to Eddie Waring or Bev Risman. We'd had some fantastic histories of the game, you know, people like Robert Gate, Trevor Delaney on, on the grounds of rugby league. And then we get, you know, Professor Tony Collins, who I know you know very well. But what we didn't have was that missing link of just great writing that happened to be about the sport. And uh, I guess we could liken it a little bit uh, to Thomas Keneally over there. Mm. Um, you know, clearly, first and foremost, a magnificent writer who just happens to be a manly fan and <laughs> wrote his novel, A Family Madness, around the game of rugby league. And that's what we were missing over here. Mm-hmm. And, Phil, do you think there is a legacy this book has left that has influenced rugby league writing in the UK? Absolutely, 100%. Um, yeah. I've got some books here at the side of me, which I think are direct descendants from from Jeffrey's book. I've got To Jerusalem and Back, written by Simon Kellner, A Personal History of Rugby League. Mm-hmm. Again, that, that is almost the antidote to what was happening in Super League at the time, but Simon, from, from a great rugby league family, was um, the editor of The Independent at the time. Dave Hadfield, I think, has been probably the greatest influence on a whole generation of writers over here. You know, he wrote things like Playing Away Australians in British Rugby League. Again, a series of profiles, but just written in such a beautiful way that you actually didn't even need to know mm. who the people were that he was writing about. You enjoyed it for, for what it was. 
Blood, Mud and Glory, uh, Neil Hansen's book on the inside story of Wigan. Again, it got unparalleled access to the dressing room by Maurice Lindsay when Wigan were at their absolute peak. Mm. But what he writes, it's, it's not reports of games, it's the interaction between the players yeah. and how actually you don't need to get on as a group of individuals, but you do as a team. And, and again, I think that was relevant to every sporting team in any sport rather than just rugby league. And by my good friend and oppo Tony Hannon, being Eddie Waring, the life and times of a sporting icon mm. obviously so much has been written and said about Eddie Ware and his contribution to rugby league this was written almost in the format of a novel rather than a authorised biography and, right. and again it's the quality and style of the writing that is different from anything we'd had before and I think all of that comes from Jeffrey Morehouse opening this door that says just because it's rugby league and just because it's got a certain image and, and place doesn't mean that it can't be taken incredibly seriously and written about in a richness that it never had been accorded before. Yeah, well, that's so interesting because I do sense a distinction between writing on rugby league in Australia and the UK. And I was wondering how much of a role Jeffrey played. That There's plenty of great writing in Australia and the UK on the game around the history and the personalities in the game. But I I think there is a difference, I feel, and I wonder what you think. I get the sense there's still, I don't know, an underground feel to the UK writing, probably because of the fact that rugby league is not mainstream like it is in Australia. So it feels like there are stories, and I mean modern-day stories, still to uncover. I'm not sure a, a book like Tony Hannon's Underdogs gets written in Australia perhaps today, or you know, I don't think a, a 40-20 style magazine gets published in Australia today. So do you sense a distinction? A little bit. I just I think there's a passion for the written word here. And although we are clearly moving into times where it's consumed in different ways and, you know, that might be via online or whatever, I, I just think that we're reluctant to let that go. And whilst newspapers clearly are in decline per se, some of the, the quality long reads you feel you've missed after a while and you want them and, and we make no great pretense for what 4020 was trying to be when we set it up 10 years ago but one of the things we wanted to do was find the next generation of writers mm -hmm. and not just reporters and not just people who would go on social media and and pass an opinion mm. but actually who would invest in a subject and would be part of that subject and would write from within that subject rather than observing outside of it and I think that has always been a tradition here mm. and we are as I say not only reluctant to let it go I think, I think there's another thing about Jeffrey Morehouse's book that, that is important to mention at this stage because again rugby league has always been niche publishing which almost is a reflection of the game itself yeah. but because it was Jeffrey he got Hodder and Stoughton to publisher at the George, you know, they are major publishers mm. and they were at the time and, and all of a sudden people were saying well actually that's a bit of a breakthrough because we've seen, and as he writes in his book, you know, cricket you only need to walk out to the crease and there's a statistic about you know, probably a book written but Rugby League had never had that and, and the legacy of that was that Hodder and Storm then agreed to do the centenary history of Rugby League in 1995 written by Geoffrey uh, which I think by his own admission would be not his finest work and, and, and I think that's because the Super League war was happening at the time it was commissioned very late there wasn't really a great brief about what was wanted and nobody really knew what the history of the sport was going to be moving forward because it was in such fluid waters yeah. at the time but to get 
get a publisher of of that preeminence almost elevated everybody to say, well, actually, you know, if we want to write about rugby league, there is somebody out there that's going to take us seriously. And I, I think we're all still, you know, clinging on to that over here as well, that yeah. whatever publishing is, if you can sell the idea that you are writing quality, there's somebody there that will publish you. Fantastic. That's so interesting. Now, Phil, how was Jeffrey considered within the game during his career? Was he an influential voice about the direction of the game or was he considered more of a, a valued ornament? I'd go with the latter. I, I never got the opportunity to meet him. Again, when they panned round at Wembley for the celebrities that were there in the old Twin Towers, you know, Jeffrey wasn't amongst them. Uh, it was the Michael Parkinsons and uh, Bernard Mannings. Uh, so I suspect that a little bit like Colin Welland, you knew that he was a passionate advocate for the sport, but he wasn't a spokesperson for it. He was busy off doing his next travel book. Or mm. I, I think he, he was a passionate fan in the stand with a pen yeah. who had a wonderfully critical eye rather than somebody who was, who was going to stand up and say, right, I, I back frame in the future and this is the direction the sport needs to go. And I'm not sure he ever had the, the desire to do that. He probably broke down more barriers for aspiring writers than he did for shaping the future of the sport and where it should be going. Yep, fair enough. And of course, it's important when reflecting on the book to understand the time in which the book was written at the George was published in the late 80s. So, Phil, can you give us a sense of where the game was at in the UK in the late 80s? I think you can looking back, because this is a conversation I was having with a good friend of mine from near where you are, about if you were to rate Super League now out of 10, what would you give it? But Mm. more importantly, what would you give it in an era which you thought was a golden era? Mm. And the one that we picked out between us was that time round about the mid to late 1980s, because it depends very much on what your criteria are going to be. And at that time, living in it, we were all concerned that Wigan's total dominance of the game was harmful but if you look back now with the benefit of hindsight the sport was getting out 70,000 in 1992 for a World Cup final at Wembley Uh, it it seemed to be on the BBC every week it was easier to build up the personalities of the game because Wigan was so dominant so the likes of Martin Afire and Ellery Hanley and Sean Edwards were household names beyond their their own households and sadly they're some of the names that still are household names and whilst we've had some absolutely wonderful uh, exponents of the sport in, in the intervening years they don't still have that resonance that that some of those names do so i think he was writing at a point where the game was high profile what's interesting and and history as you know is incredibly cyclical is that in 1974 the game was at probably one of its lowest ebbs over here Mm. there there was very little commercial income very little appearances on television it was almost sidelined to the point of being that era when it's played in the in the dark in the mud in the in the shadow of the the coal mines and Mm. it's all big fat lads want to hit each other and and we almost were a caricature of ourselves and even we weren't going to watch our own sport attendances were as low as they'd been in the in the top division mm. we, we got a new administration under david oxley and and david house and by the mid to end of the 1980s when jeffrey was writing this book the game had completely transformed itself yeah. so i think he's writing from a point of view of 
it's almost a golden era. Mm. But what he hadn't obviously encountered was full-time, which mm -hmm. has changed the nature of the game. He didn't realise that it would move to summer, which adds, a, a, again, a totally different dimension. Mm. Uh, he talks about American football and, and hopes that, you know, maybe rugby league doesn't go down that route. But actually... In, in some ways it has and it has to because yeah. we're now at that point where you're either global or local mm. you can do both very well but you have to make that decision of of what you want to be and and none of that was really in the domain he was writing about it would have been really really interesting to get his take on the game as it's now played as opposed to that one that he was part of where the team that he supported was setting every standard yeah definitely that's a really good point and i'll, I'll get to that in a second in terms of full-time professionalization and, and Americanization, I suppose. But first, for me, the book was really interesting to read in the context of current debates about expansion. It seems, like you say, Jeffrey Morehouse was cautious about expansion, though not necessarily anti-expansion. He writes with warmth about the touring PNG team on their tour of the UK in 87, saying that PNG are reminded that there's no earthly reason why rugby league cannot spread to some of the most unlikely corners of the globe, provided the progression is right. What do you think he meant by that, provided the progression is right? I suspect that he would have loved the developments in the Pacific at the moment. I think he would have really enjoyed the 1995 World Cup when we saw South Africa emerge, we saw Fiji play. But I think he was as probably recognising as much as so many of us who've tried to write about the sport and the expansion of the sport, that unless you do it with resource, mm. you're just playing at it. And I think we'd seen for so many years that the dominance was in in four nations. How on earth were we going to get other countries that were going to be at that level? Mm. What, what, of course, you won't have foreseen were things like the PNG Hunters, the rise of the New Zealand Warriors within the NRL structure that was going to bring so much new talent through with different you know, indigenous bases towards it. I think that the difficulty he would have found and, and would have been frustrated about today is the lack of an international calendar. Mm. And I think that's possibly what he meant about progress as well that if you're going to do it you've got to have the fixtures mm. um, you've got to know when your international teams are playing you've got to have your your world cups in place long before the next one is actually due on the horizon if you are going to release players who are playing for heritage reasons there's got to be a, a commitment to do that and, mm. a, and a, an ongoing fixture list so that they know if they sacrifice playing for the for the country that, that they were either born in or they might be playing in it but they're relating to their heritage that there is a better reason to do that he, he would have loved I think what Jason Taumalolo did and the, mm. not what he did but the reasoning behind what he did mm -hmm. because it was to all intents and purposes to strengthen the international game and I think he could see from being a, a great lover of cricket and a quite anti-rugby union in a lot of what he writes in At The George mm. that one of the things that sustained them was their international element and I, and I think he thought if we're going to do it we've got to do it properly mm. and if we don't do it properly then we're opening ourselves up to being ridiculed so I think that's what he probably meant by progression but I suspect it was more time and resource yeah no no fair, fair point now, Phil, as you mentioned just before, in his essay, Cloth Caps and Other Images, uh, Jeffrey conveys a bit of concern, I think, with what seems to be the coming tide of professionalization of sport and the game of rugby league. And it's specifically an American brand of professionalism uh, that he's particularly concerned about. And I guess back then, professionalization was synonymous with Americanization in the sporting context. So what does that mean? Well, he states in the essay that he'd be very unhappy to see a game between 
the Wigan Wildcats and the Batley Braves. But of course, as you say, Rugby League did embrace that kind of thing, at least to some extent, only a few years later. Super League happens, Wigan become the Warriors. Batley, the Bulldogs, leads the Rhinos. There are cheerleaders, fireworks. Phil, I guess his stance highlights the tension between tradition and quote-unquote progress that, that was clearly present in the 80s and really remains omnipresent today. Do you think this tension has intensified in recent times or has it consistently been like this and that it's just the 24-7 media age that we all live in that might make it seem like it's getting more intense? Yes, partly, but also we live in an echo chamber. So all of that that we see is us talking to ourselves and Mm. not necessarily how we're perceived from the outside. I suspect that if we were having this conversation in 1907 and we'd gone down to 13 players from 15 and uh, we'd modified the scrum rule and we brought in the play the ball and we'd lost line outs we'd be saying it's the end of the sport you know this is now the rugby that I grew up with and we, we are resistant to change naturally as, as human beings uh, we, we need to be given a great case that what we're going to is, is better than where we are but a hundred years on from those decisions, the game looks and feels different to every generation. And sometimes, you know, it's not quite as easy just to say it was better in the old days. Mm. It's the world that you live in and adapting to that world. Um, I'm not sure we do that terribly well because we don't seem to have a huge amount of self-confidence. Mm-hmm. There's this great contradiction within rugby league that we call ourselves the greatest game but if we really believed it we'd go out there and sell it as the greatest game and we're reluctant to do that because that'll bring people in that may take the game away from us Mm. and I think what Jeffrey would have realised and and obviously you hate to speak on behalf of somebody who who you've never met you're just basing it on some of their writings that Mm. you've read is that I think he he would have realised that the game had to move on um, having written the history of the game, he you know, ch- and charted the developments of it, whilst he may not because of how he came to enjoy it and, and the kind of things that he related to have, have thought that Wigan Warriors was a great idea, mm. I can see that once he'd got the concept of Super League and that's how the modern game's being played, he may well still be a season ticket holder at the DW Stadium and cheering on that team in very near cherry and white but not quite anymore, mm. that he's got that passion for and and I, and I guess that's what it is. It's, it's identity. What do we want to be? What, what have we always wanted to be? Do we want to live in the shadow of another sport that's got a very similar name to ours that we feel prejudiced by and we're balanced by the chip we have on both of our shoulders? Or do we want to forge a world out there where we just let the sport speak for itself? The great debate at the moment on both sides of the world is probably about Uh, equity finance Mm -hmm. and can we survive without it but if we invite it in then what changes will they demand of us to give us the finance we need and it will and has in in quite a lot of sports materially changed Mm. some of their value of what they are now we need to have a debate about that and talk seriously about what that means and the benefits of uh, being on a wider stage. So, again, the, the whole Toronto debate, mm. where the 17th and 18th clubs should be in the NRL, yeah. uh, what international rugby league should look like, and can that ever be the pinnacle of the sport that's going to drive it to new markets and new audiences? Some of those questions Jeffrey would have been asking in his books, mm. uh, and we still haven't got the answers for, but the world has moved on. I mean, there's a really interesting parallel in what he writes about American football, because... Mm-hmm. You can clearly see that it's an anathema to him, but he cites 
Channel 4, which was a, a minority channel, just come online probably about six or seven years before he wrote about mm. it, that had a highlights programme on a Monday night with loud rock music behind it. And all it was was the touchdowns. And, and over here, we were an unfamiliar audience to American football. We got to know the teams and their funny names, and we got to know some of the players and their funny hairstyles. We got to know what some of the moves were called. Mm. But what we got was action. Total 100% distillation highlight action of the best of the sport. We never saw the worst of it. Mm. We never saw the teams, you know, running off to, to have an ad break or the, the attack and the defence changing every five minutes. And, and Jeffrey tries to highlight that, you know, don't be tricked by this. Well, society has moved to exactly that in the meantime. We only live on highlights. People, you know, are conditioned now with their mobile devices to watch the best of rather than all of. Mm -hmm. And what's really really interesting over here on sky we have nrl try time yeah so it's an hour highlights program of all of the best tries not the defense not the uh, intricacies and tactics of the nrl it's purely and utterly in your face glorious attacking rugby and now if you're not a devotee of the sport you can tune into that and be absolutely bowled over by it i think a lot of us were by american football so while jeffrey's saying you know don't be seduced by it i think Quite a few people over here were, and now that's why there are games at Wembley with 80,000 people watching yeah. them, and there is talk of the the NFL eventually maybe having a, a franchise over here in London, and I think that just is the modern way. So he highlights all the things we've always talked about and will continue to talk about, but the context is different now. Mm. And once you do get into full-time and money um, and whether you want to be global or not, or whether you can survive merely being local, that is now probably more relevant than it's ever been. Yeah, very true. And you get the sense that the NFL never had any qualms about what expanding into another market would mean for the fabric of the game back in its home country, um, which seems something that would be, well, is often spoken about. I know when it comes to the, the private equity debate in the UK, there were lots of, like you addressed there, lots of discussions about, do we want this? Is this something that we're ready for? And it's, it's a debate that kind of actually needs to be had uh, even more. Well, there's something even more simple than that if we were to equate the rugby league over here and the way it's structured and, and the NRL. We are so wedded to home and away fixtures mm. that we give ourselves a straitjacket sometimes. I look at some of the rounds that you're having and you're taking them out to you know country towns mm -hmm. or South will have an agreement that they'll play a game in Perth every year. We wouldn't get away with that over mm. here. Or we don't think we would. Mm. But we don't try it because there is innate resistance to things like that but we had a super league on the road round in 1997 right. where effectively it was an extra fixture rather than taking one of your home games yeah. and again you look back on that now and and you realize that you know bradford played london and edinburgh and 15,000 people turned up and watched the game and you think even the world cup we you know we took a game to bristol in 2013 mm. on a wet wednesday night between the two lowest ranked sides in the competition america and the cook islands and 8000 people turned up now those 8000 people didn't all travel down from the north of england they mm -hmm. were 8000 virtually new eyes in the west country we've never gone back yeah. so i think all of that is part of this debate about who you are what you want to be and how you're going to get there and i think that does come out from from jeffrey's book because he 
he doesn't just talk about his love of Wigan. He does go to Australia and talk about yeah. test matches, and he does talk about the way the game is structured over there. He does mention PNG, um, and I think he's excited by the potential that they can bring. And, I, and that's why I think he would have loved this 2021 World Cup, where if we get all the players coming over who are eligible and can play, you could look at seven nations who could at least be semi-finalists, yeah. possibly four who could win it, and we've never had that before. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, this is all very interesting, and it kind of leads me to my next point of discussion, which is around uh, rugby league and place, as you were alluding to in your answer there. Now, among the, the many strings to Jeffrey Morehouse's bow was his writing about place. He was, as you mentioned, a travel writer of great repute, and he devotes individual chapters of the book to Sydney, Queensland, and the west coast of New Zealand. Now, he was clearly interested in the relationship between rugby league and place, and of course, the great split of 1895 was about class and place, and it's very hard to separate those two aspects. And reading the book really got me thinking about rugby league's relationship with place. It does seem to me that rugby league has a relationship with place that not many other sports have. You know, the north of England, the east coast of Australia, the west coast of New Zealand, the south of Auckland, the south of France. Obviously, the link with class is tight too, and maybe it's inevitable for a relatively small sport to have a greater relationship with place. But where I'm going with this is perhaps a a fundamental linkage to place provides warmth for those inside the tent, but at the same time makes it harder to expand the tent. Those outside perhaps are a bit apprehensive, while those in the tent aren't necessarily keen to lose the comfort, the warmth that they've become accustomed to. This is like the the trade-off, I guess, of an attachment to place. And also, when a sport is so closely linked with place, its success is tied pretty tight to the broader economic progression of the place. I think to Tony Collins' work, noting the highs and lows of UK rugby league historically coinciding with broader economic ebbs and flows. So maybe the reason rugby league has thrived most on the eastern seaboard of Australia relative to the other regions I mentioned is simply just due to luck and circumstance rather than innate entrepreneurial abilities of a few men, which seems to be the prevailing wisdom, uh, particularly in Australia. You know, you hear the variations of, you know, Australian rugby league has thrived and UK rugby league hasn't because Australian administrators got it right and UK administrators didn't. You know, maybe, but reading this book made me think maybe it's more to do with the timing of rugby league's introduction to each of these places relative to that region's history. So, for example, rugby league was introduced in Australia when Sydney and Brisbane were sparsely populated. Australia had only just become a federation, a country, a few years earlier. Rugby league was introduced to Sydney and Brisbane at the beginning of their trajectories to become the global cities they are today. They were working-class enclaves that have turned into middle-class metropolises, and rugby league in Australia has rode on the back of that and has benefited from that. Uh, Rugby league is still a working-class sport in Australia, but the middle classes are ensconced to a decent degree too. Meanwhile, in the UK and in the south of France, rugby league was introduced at a very different part of each of those regions' trajectories. These were long-established regions with deep and varied histories and have since seen just as many hard times as good. And so I guess it's no coincidence rugby league has struggled on as those regions have. A tangible example might be uh, a recent one. The, The GFC hit you guys very hard in the UK while we were largely spared in Australia. This meant austerity for the UK which hit the north really hard and perhaps it's no surprise UK rugby league has stagnated since then while Australian rugby league has continued to advance but all the conversations seem to be about bungle this and hopeless that which is no doubt true to an extent but when you're dealt a rubbish hand 
you're probably always going to look bad. So I guess the question after all this is, understanding individuals play a role in the trajectory of a sport do you think we focus too much on individuals and personalities when we look back through uk rugby league history and even when we consider the issues of today or were our said individuals ultimately hamstrung and simply at the mercy of the economic conditions that they found or find themselves in after all professional sport is capitalism and capitalism generally sees the rich get richer and the gap between the haves and have-nots continue to widen. So I guess what I'm trying to ask after all that is, are we too harsh on the UK game, Phil? Um, Probably not, because the opportunities historically have been to make it bigger and better than than what it is perceived to be at the moment. I I think I'd go back to a couple of things to start with, and that is place. I mean, place is as much identity as it is geography, and I think you, you do need to look at them separately. I think class is a really interesting issue that probably needs redefining because going back to, again, the time of Eddie Waring and, and Geoffrey Morehouse is quite critical of the latter years of Eddie Waring saying he is all about personality and selling himself rather mm. than the game, which I think he finds a, a, quite a significant drawback. But that place that Geoffrey Morehouse is referring to and Eddie Waring is identified with is northern industrial and working class. Mm. What does that actually mean at the moment? Mm. And particularly the working class element, we haven't redefined what working class is because it used to be a pure economic distinction. I'm not sure it is anymore. Now now the distinction is more working and non-working class. Yeah. Now, where does a sport that is so clearly identified with that strata of the population, where does that fit in? If you then look at geography and, and as you say, the economics of geography, you know, the northern industrial heartland um, was the backbone of Britain at the time that rugby league was founded. And mm. You know, it no longer is. The, the manufacturing industries are not there. You know, the, the Castleford were known as the, the glass blowers and Barrow were the shipbuilders for all good reason. That that is what supported not just the region but the sport that was representative of that region. Now, when none of that is there, what are you as a sport? So, I think if you know the roots of some of the trees in your garden are dying, where do you replant the new forest to keep your sport going? Mm. And I think again, we get too hamstrung by. We are a sport of the north of England. And, and I think the analogy, again, was best used by Tony Hannan in, in a lot of the debates we've had. Mm. Um, you know, country music is redolent of a very particular part of America. But you wouldn't say that country music was only restricted to that part of America. Now, country music is beloved throughout the world by loads of different people who realise and associate with the fact that its roots and origins are from a particular part of the world. Mm. I'm not sure we've ever come to the realisation and worked off the back of that's us in many ways mm. that you know just because we were born in a certain place doesn't mean that we can't be loved everywhere but to be loved everywhere you've got to be prepared to open yourselves up a lot and i'm not sure we ever have you look at when the northern union was formed how many teams were playing in places like plymouth and coventry and Mm. newcastle and south shields it's not that we we've never done it we've never done it well or for long enough or with enough resource or with a specific plan on how we're going to roll it out and again the classic example of that at the moment is london you know who are celebrating 40 years having had a team called london in a professional environment but have had 
the most nomadic existence, have never put down roots. If you, if you amortised all the money that's been put into London and you'd kept it in a plan that developed rugby league in London, it would be one of the very strongest areas that played the sport. Mm-hmm. But I suspect that we haven't done it because, A, we don't put the resource in in one lump and have a plan how we're going to spend it over a period of time. And, B, whenever we get a good player coming out of that system, that it's the Northern clubs that want to take it or to penalise London by not giving them a dispensation against the salary cap or a, a waiting for the cost of living being higher down there that's sufficient to attract players. All of those things are within our gift. You know, we, we were talk, I was talking to somebody the other day about England and Ireland who played each other in the 2000 World Cup in the quarterfinal at Headingley, uh, 15, 16,000 there, one of the great games of that tournament. Mm-hmm. And because Ireland had got players of great heritage but high standard there, it looked as though we, we'd made a foundation for Ireland being a significant nation, but that group never really played together again. Mm-hmm. You then come to the 2013 World Cup, England play Ireland at the McAlpine Stadium in Huddersfield, and it sold out 24,000 for a game that everybody who went there knew England were going to win by about 30 or 40 points just on the strength of the, the respective teams. But we never build on it. Hmm. So I think criticism is justified. I think the realisation of what the world is now, as opposed to the world is when you were preeminent, is also part of the introspection that you need to take. And, you know, I'm not close enough to the politics of what's happening in the NRL at the moment, but there seems to be a feeling that expansion is on the agenda. Now, how that is brought to fruition, there's a lot of talk which would be fantastic about joining together some of investment in the competition to have it over here as well to bring the state of origin game maybe in five years time to to england because Mm -hmm. it it would definitely not only boost the game over here but it would be a sellout it would generate money it would give a a greater impression of of what origin is and and the standard of the game at the highest level over there that a lot of people over here who don't follow rugby league uh, could see and then perhaps become more attached to, to to the game over here that if there is going to be expansion and there is something in North America and none of us know what it is and again that's a story that goes back 50, 60, 70 years is it something that needs to be jointly funded by the NRL and whatever Super League RFL governing body is going to emerge over here at least those sort of topics are on the agenda at the moment too often in the past Hmm. I don't think they have been yeah yeah look I'm sure there are some who are listening who think I'm making excuses for for poor administration I, I don't think I am I'm just suggesting some leniency could, should be applied. And, and further to that, I don't think such leniency should apply for Australian administrators if they you know, haven't worked things out, who have, generally speaking, been dealt a comparatively decent hand. And I, I take your point you on... See, what I, I was just going to say, what, what I like about what's happened in Australia recently is that you have put the PNG hunters in the Queensland competition and you have put the silk tails in yeah. the New South Wales competition. I mean, that to me is development in the proper sense of the word, whereby you're giving the opportunity to people in those lands who want to take rugby as a career option, who will enhance the national team with the idea of then taking games back to Suva or test matches in Port Moresby. And I think what, you know, the Prime Minister's 13 going and playing PNG on a regular basis, that I think is something that we should be lauding 
mm. um, administrators for. But actually, why don't they then apply that to the wider vision of the game when they're totally ensconced in a club environment? And that's the problem we've got over here at the moment, that everything is overly club-dominated and all our administrators mm. are influenced by the governance structure we've got, which give clubs too much power. So we've got the ridiculous situation coming up later in June where England are playing the combined nation all-stars and whether in fact that's a viable game or not it doesn't really matter it's a hit out for Sean Wayne before the World Cup but on that same night three Super League games are being played now when you've got that level of disconnect and you're not putting the wider issues of the prominence of the sport at the head of your thinking that's when I think administrators can be justifiably and rightfully criticised Yes, no, absolutely, a thousand percent agree with that, Phil. I guess um, what I was just going to to say was that, well, firstly, I would say, yeah, in Australia, we're we're getting a bit worried that the NRL administrators are just thinking club first and everything else worry about later. Well, club and state of origin and everything else worry about later. So that is a worry in the Australian game as well. The other thing to note is the, the kind of expansion into the Pacific is also being aided by the federal government's policy direction towards shoring up influence in the Pacific is around PNG with rugby league and also the the silk tails are, are being supported by our Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade the r- rugby league in PNG the Australian government has has some support around that as well so that's quite a, an interesting uh, side as well on your point about I take your point about the country music example which I think is a very good example and also I've heard similar points about darts and, and things like that, how working class sports or pastimes that were considered are quite narrow have expanded beyond the origin. I suppose the only distinction there is for darts and for country music, there's not a, a darts union or a country music union where, you know, a whole, the upper classes of those audiences are sort of siphoned off and have all the advantages that the powerful and the upper classes do. So I suppose that's, I guess that's what I'm trying to sort of say when I'm kind of <laughs> half defending poor administration, which I'm, I'm trying not to do, but I'm just trying to sort of put things into to context. And I suppose the other thing to labour the point is that uh, for many reasons, you know, we've seen a, a prominence towards cities at the expense of regions over the, the past 50 or 60 years or all around the world. And due to circumstance more than anything else, rugby league is prominent in large Australian cities and the bush, of course, but, you know, Sydney and Brisbane. And, of course, rugby league in the UK is not. And once again, not because they don't want to be. It's kind of the way things panned out and a handicap that rugby league was given from the beginning. In 1895, the biggest city was shutting you guys out of rugby and you had to start a new competition away from your biggest city. So, again, there's another natural advantage Australian rugby league has over the UK in that it happens to have a presence in big cities and... That has helped it cash in when the big money eventually came to sport. I guess I make all these points, Phil, because I feel bad when Australian fans take pot shots at the state of the game in the UK without taking into account the broader context. I'd say a a couple of things on that. One on cities is right at the very beginning, Rugby League or Northern Union as it was, was culpable of not particularly going into cities like Manchester and Liverpool. Mm. What what we think now is we we look at at soccer and how preeminent it is and think it's always been that way. But actually, uh, you know, Northern Union was a lot stronger than soccer when it was founded. Mm -hmm. And in the north of England, the game of choice was rugby. Mm. And the rugby of choice was the anti-establishment version that was 
it's still rugby union in the rules that it was played mm. but it was administered by the strongest clubs up north who broke away yeah. but it didn't break away to the extent where had it had a policy of how it was going to consolidate that and expand that it would probably have been the major sport over here mm. but it didn't want to be it wanted to still restrict itself to certain cities so whilst you're right about cities it didn't follow that through and, and actually try and dominate even in the north of england yeah i think the other thing is regions do work and I would point to two of them in the modern era, one of which sadly is no longer with us and is why sometimes administrators are culpable. But Catalan Dragons, although they are based in Perpignan and only play out of Perpignan, apart from when they took a very, very successful game to Barcelona, are called what they are and attract fans from the region. Mm -hmm. They are Catalonian. And again, that appeals to the spirit of anti-establishment and and that's why it fits really great with rugby league but they made a decision not to call themselves the city of Perpignan Mm. we had the same with Celtic Crusaders that again an idea that was absolutely right that Wales has always been such a fertile ground for the production of players and loves handling the ball Mm. and is ideally suited to rugby league and the idea of the Celtic Crusaders that they would play some of their games in South Wales that they would you know play some games in Wrexham and North Wales to have a side that represents a region or a country is the way forward I think you can do that with Ireland you could do that with Scotland it would make material benefit Uh, differences and offer opportunities to players because the other thing that we haven't spoken about and we probably can't is that less people even in the traditional areas are taking up the sport now naturally and as of choice because of changing demographics within those cities that were so important when the game was formed and it's a whole other debate but actually you need to go out and find new markets not just of economic support and fan bases but players as well and regionally is probably how you do that Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, absolutely agree. that, And this is why I've got you on, Phil. This is such an education for me. So thank you so much. I guess what you're saying there also about the, the origins of rugby league in the UK and how they didn't necessarily want to expand into the bigger cities, it sort of stems back to what we were saying earlier about the historical relationship between rugby league and place and how it may have uh, hemmed it in from the beginning, which kind of leads me to my next question, Phil, what we're talking about here. What does rugby league look like if it was somehow run ideally, whatever that entails? I spoke to Jonathan Liu earlier this year and he said, look, rugby league is doing okay considering it definitely could do a lot better, but it's never going to be a mainstream sport in the UK. And that was quite jarring to me. So do you agree with that? And and what does an exquisitely run rugby league look like in the UK? That is a fantastic and almost impossible to answer question. I think there are some fundamental issues about what the sport wants to be. And that, that is something that all of us need to answer. You know, if we want to be the best of a specific geographic region, a cheese that is made solely from the milk of this part of the world, that tastes fantastic but doesn't get exported much wider than this part of the world, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Let's just be the best we can be. But if we are and that is the route that we're going to take, then don't expect to have 
every game reported in the national media. Don't expect to be mentioned alongside other sports. Don't expect to have your results read out on national radio stations. That is the choice that you are. Then that rolls back into don't expect your players to be full-time professionals earning a decent wage. They will be part-time. And don't expect the standard to rival that of Australia or New Zealand. And don't expect to necessarily win a World Cup. There may be nothing wrong with that, but that's what you're choosing to be. Mm. I think if you actually genuinely, passionately believe that your product is saleable, and I think the one thing that I've never really fully understood is that people who you bring to the sport that are not familiar with it, even like Jeffrey Morehouse, you know, making this sort of a cyclical debate, Mm. who wasn't brought up as a a rugby league fan, he was an avowed football fan, soccer fan. Mm. Uh, but he came across a game and fell in love with it, like so many people do. And, and there are so many other sportsmen in Britain at the moment, cricketers to footballers to netball players, who are so admiring mm. of the athleticism and skill and sacrifice of rugby league that they put it on a pedestal. Mm. If we want to do that, if we want to give those players the rewards and the, the vista that they deserve, then we have to look differently at how we are now going to promote the game in the future and and see where it's played, what is going to appeal to external investors because we're going to be so contingent upon them putting money in because the the areas of money that we've been used to going to are are drying up. If we want to get multinational sponsors, we have to show them that there is value in them putting money into the sport because people throughout the world are aware of and watching the sport. And and it comes down to fundamental issues, which is, again, a debate that I've had for a long time and been a lone voice in some respects about even what you call yourself mm-hmm. um, I have honestly thought for quite a number of years that we need to ditch the word rugby mm. um, it might sound radical but we did ditch Northern Union in 1921 so like everything there is precedent there yeah. um, but I just think the word rugby hamstrings us to be bigger than what we are it's it's a town in uh, you know the, the Midlands that is has a nominal, if at all, relationship with the sport of the oval ball. Uh, we've never really played it there. It is now at the point where it means to most people who don't support rugby passionately, rugby union by default. Mm-hmm. When you're a new nation, be it in Africa or Europe or the Americas or even the Pacific, the first question you've got to ask is, or answer when you're asked, particularly by a government or a federation, is, but we already support rugby and you're coming to us with a different form of rugby. Mm-hmm. In no other sport are you directly compared to something else. Mm. And I think that's something that we need to get our head around. And if we are going to appeal to those people who I think will embrace what we've got to offer, we need to think differently about what we are, who we are, who we appeal to, how you maintain tradition but also move the game forward in the global market that it is i think the big issue here which you don't have in the nrl is that rugby league here is both professional and semi-professional 
within the Super League and the Championship and League One, which is all funded by the governing body. So I'm, I'm not talking about the fact that you can play socially or you can have yeah. the New South Wales League and the Queensland League. Within what is termed as the, the, the professional yeah. rank of rugby league, some of it is semi-professional. Yeah. And again, there is a case now for saying, and I, I think, again, we've mentioned it a lot on, on the 4020 podcast, that the game needs to decide what the full-time professional element needs and should be and can attract resource and what the part-time community element could and should be so that everybody can contribute to the whole and I'm not sure we're addressing those kind of issues at yeah. the so if you're asking me ideally what should an administration look like what should the sport look like an independent commission that splits the game between full-time and part-time that moves into a licensed arena that doesn't close the door on aspiration but doesn't have promotion or relegation as an integral part of whatever the scheme is mm. that looks to open new markets with sufficient resource and time to give them growth that has a comprehensive resourcing policy from whatever is available that incorporates all of the game from a kid of five picking up a ball to be an inspiring international mm. and that can only come under one body we've got about four at the moment that are responsible for that and while that is the way of our world we will never move forward sufficiently to change it to any great degree yeah that is so interesting and, and i totally agree uh, the separation between professional and, and non-professional is key and reading i always revert back to tony hannon's underdogs but that was a, a real eye-opener for me in that when I first uh, laid eyes on UK Rugby League properly a few years ago when I started doing this podcast, I always loved it, etc. But like looking at it properly over the last few years, I was like in love with promotion relegation. This is a great idea, so romantic, it's true sport. And then I read Underdogs and following the, the travails of the Batley Bulldogs and they were getting close to the middle eights so they you know potentially could have been promoted to Super League. But you've got the sense they didn't really want to. They weren't in the position to. And they were kind of happy to be semi-professional and sort of getting by and, and sort of serving their community that way. So it got me thinking, well, why, why do we have it? Uh, what's the point if there are a bunch of teams who are not really interested in getting promoted? So that's, that's a very interesting point, and, and you reminded me of that. Well, Batley are a classic example of that. They have never had an aspiration to play in Super League. Mm. Their raison d'etre is to be going for another 120 years at a level where they are self-sustainable yeah. and they've never made any secret of that but what Batley are are a very important conduit to the communities that now make up the town of Batley and its mm. surrounding areas and I think you'll see with the forthcoming by-election in Batley and Spend that it, it's going to be a very interesting microcosm of what British society is today mm. but particularly British industrial working class society and how it's changed and how voting patterns have changed and Batley sit in the middle of all that as a rugby league club that in the 1890s were the best club in the game mm. you know the first winners of the challenge cup but Batley's biggest day out in recent memory was when they won the Northern Rail Cup final which was for only teams outside of Super League at Blackpool in front of eight or 9,000 fans and had their civic reception at Batley Town Hall and yeah. took the cup back to Mount Pleasant <laughs> and lifted it amongst their two and a half, three thousand 3,000 absolutely passionate fans who will stick by them. And that was enough. 
Yeah. And again, I think if you're talking about ideal scenarios and how you split but give value to both parts of the game because they're equally important, then the 1895 Cup, which is now, if you like, the follow-on from mm. the Northern Rail Cup, we've got semi-finals coming up of that competition. And in it are you know York, Swinton, Widnes and Featherstone. And the Two winners of those semi-finals will play at Wembley. Mm. Now, the only chance those clubs will get of playing at Wembley is in this competition that the Super League clubs are not involved in. But they will get their day out at Wembley, which they will now never get in the Challenge Cup mm. because the world has changed. So give them something to play for, a venue to play at. Headingley has been redeveloped into one of the finest stadiums in the country we've got here at the moment. Mm. It, would, it would rival virtually everything that you've got over there in terms of just over 20,000 capacity, but it is ridiculously state-of-the-art, yeah, and somehow ground. they've managed to retain that sense of history. So mm. if you were to say to those clubs like Batley in the Championship, your season will culminate with the Championship Grand Final at Headingley, and it will be something like, let's say, Batley versus Oldham. You would get an almost sellout, I am convinced, because it would be an event. Mm. And again, going back to some of the things you were talking about earlier we are in an event culture and how do you get new people involved you, you talked about there is a clear natural gravitation of the upper classes to rugby union you put on an event in anything at the moment and people will go mm-hmm. I, I have a feeling that the rugby league world cup is going to be a success because it's going to be seen to be the first big event we've had over in this country and people who are not normally rugby league followers over the last two years who haven't really been out been able to follow anything will go to an event if it's mm-hmm. sold in such a way as you know you really need to be part of this in the same way that the Paralympics has become a real event and people are going not because they possibly even know who some of the people uh, taking part are they want to be there to be seen to support something Mm. well I think if you had that championship grand final with a cash prize at the end of it it's a hundred thousand pound winner takes all that's enough for Batley that's how you sell the idea that you don't necessarily have to have promotion on the back of it Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm not sure these are the questions we're asking at the moment. Mm. Oh, yeah, fascinating stuff, Phil. Now, I'm going to take a, a diversion now uh, and talk a bit more about the, the book at the George. But before I do, I want to note your comment on the name Rugby League and that debate, which I find very interesting. I, I'm kind of new to it, but I have noticed you you're making these comments about changing the name of Rugby League. And it's a worthwhile discussion because, yes, like you say, you break up the name Rugby League. Rugby, the town of Rugby does not represent Rugby League and kind of represents everything but and then the name league is just you know it's just a, a ladder it's just like a competition it's just um, everyone uses league so yeah you're right that, that is a very good point but time to divert and i really want to talk about the third test which is the final i believe the final essay in at the george and i really love that essay and it's the essay in which great britain and a tough 1988 tour of australia with a victory at the city football stadium now this is the game of the henderson gill jig this essay really highlights for me all that's great about Morehouse's writing. He'll meander with you on the way to the ground. He'll point out interesting sights and lend you some unique observations. And then he'll step it up a gear with an electric depiction of some of the passages of play. Here's a bit that I enjoyed, Phil. It was Paul Lachlan who made the break. From a play the ball inside his own 25, Andy Gregory flicked out a pass to the St. Helens centre who sidestepped Curry even as he took the ball and then left the Aussie standing as he got into his stride. Kanescu flung himself into the tackle, but Lachlan changed pace and it missed. He changed pace again, swerving between O'Connor and Vorton, and by now he's in the Australian half, with Gill outside him. 
As a hand, Lewis's reached his shoulder, Lachlan passed, and his winger was away. But this was not the Henderson Gill who stirs Central Park to mirth with his crab-like scuttlings across the field, ducking and dodging every arm that reaches for him. This today was the Gill who sees the corner straight ahead and goes for it like the bandy-legged clappers. He went so well that even Eddingshausen was left sprawling behind and Jack was still losing way when the Wigan man grounded the ball. Ecstasy for maybe a couple of thousand in the crowd and Gill showing his version of it by rotating his backside like a wahine in the tropical throws. Phil, describing what happens on a rugby league or sporting field is fairly straightforward in theory and has always been part of sports coverage. But to bring it to life is a different writing beast. How do you approach as a writer this part of sports writing? I I don't feel that I can qualify myself to to answer that because obviously there are leagues of writers and Geoffrey Morehouse, Dave Hadfield are in the Premier League and Mm. and, and I'm somewhere in the Northern Conference. (laughs) Um, What that passage that you just read out, which, which actually, again, took me back to that moment and watching it on the television over here and jumping off the settee with just glee and abandon at the skill that you'd seen and what it meant and the fact that it looked like you know Great Britain were going to do something very, very special, which in my lifetime we haven't seen that often. It's painting pictures, isn't it, through the eloquence of words. And the one thing that I do think is really important is vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, in some ways, it goes back to your sense of worth as a sport. I think that we've always thought, you know, it, it has to be plain, it has to be descriptive, mm-hmm. it has to just be functionary and reporting. But the best things I've read, and, and again, another of the um, the writers that I grew up with who reported on sport was Trevor Watson in the Yorkshire Evening Post. And I just used to love his phraseology because... He could have been writing about anything, but he just happened to be writing about something that I knew, describing it in such a way that it was almost making the deeds of the players who you knew and loved seem superhuman. Mm. And I think if you can do that by thinking beyond the past two and crossed and whitewash and all the things that everybody naturally gravitates Mm. towards to describe things is an absolute gift Mm. and and Morehouse has got it the best writers have got it we can't talk about a broadcaster called Stuart Hall at the moment because uh, he is no longer deemed to be in any way politically correct nor should he be Mm. but away from what he may or may not have done off the field that has landed him where he is at the moment he used to come on and do radio reports on soccer which used analogies to Shakespeare, to ancient Greece and Rome. And he'd be talking about a nil-nil soccer drawer at Goodison Park between Everton and Preston. And by the end of it, having used all these wonderful words and narration and descriptive power and relating it to things that had nothing to do with sport, you'd forgot actually which game it was he was reporting on and even what the score was Mm. but it didn't matter because it was beautiful and it was up there with any distinctive form of art or opera or painting and that's what great writing is it elevates to an art form and and i think what jeffrey morehouse taught us was you can do that with rugby league Mm. and that passage that you just read out is a classic example of that that wasn't Lockley made a break he drew in all the cover uh, he gave the ball to gill gill uh, yeah was faster than everybody else and scored in the corner Mm. it was just beautifully evocative Mm. and immediately whether you knew who any of those players were you were there you could see it 
you're part of it. And he, he, again, you know, by equating it to things that are non-rugby related, like the style that they're running or what it might have represented outside of he's just scored a very good try in the corner, mm. you suddenly realise that rugby league is worthy of being treated like this and that's why it is a, a literary landmark. Mm. It, it's the quality of the writing and not necessarily what you're writing about. Rugby league becomes the backdrop to great writing. Yeah. And also, the, I suppose, the pace of that piece as well. He sort of takes his time to explain what happens in that movement. Uh, it goes over more than half a page. Well, obviously, the movement only went for, for 10 seconds, probably. And that's kind of the, the sign of a, a good writer as well, I think. Someone who knows when to take the time to sort of draw it out and draw out the beauty of, of what's happened. Well, you, you've had two wonderful writers on this podcast in Jonathan Liu and Donald McRae, mm. who are the absolute epitome of that, that, yeah. that Donald does the kind of interviews that the rest of us can only dream of, mm. and that's because he sees his subject matter probably not as the sport that they're representing, but the story that he can tell about them, and that, again, is, is, is a real gift. Jonathan's analysis mm. of any sport, again, is, is taken from a perspective that he isn't really looking at the sport. He's looking at the, the lessons that can be drawn from the point he's trying to make yeah. about the sport, and, and I think that, that is the gift. That, yeah. that absolutely is a gift. Absolutely. Now, this essay also brings to us questions about the the real state of International Rugby League. You know, COVID has shown the real standing of International Rugby League, and unfortunately it's not great, shown by the fact that there has been literally zero high-level International Rugby League played since COVID. Uh, Every other major sport, every other sport really, has been able to keep its international calendar going. So can Rugby League World Cup 2021 be a bit of a circuit breaker, or is that asking too much? You're in the UK, obviously, where this tournament will be held. What do you think it can realistically achieve? It can. I think if it goes ahead in the planned format, it will. We talked earlier about administrators and should they be held culpable or, or can we make you know justifiable excuse for the scene of operations that they have to mm. uh, undertake their work in. The World Cup Organising Committee have nothing but my utmost admiration and respect with yeah. the work that they've done in the most, most difficult of times there could possibly have been to organise something. Mm. Um, I think they fully understand what legacy means. I think they venues that they've picked, that the way they've gone about promoting the game, the fact that it, for the first time ever in its history, it's men's, women's and wheelchair given equal credence, mm. the, the patronage they've had to have the draw done at Buckingham Palace, which whatever you might think of the royal family, again, achieve space in media outlets that rugby league could only have, have dreamt of in the past mm-hmm. the, everything that they've done i think has had the stamp of quality and class and that should it all go ahead in the manner in which it will it would be a success mm. my only slight concern is exactly what happened in 2013 where some of these senior organizers were the same people and, and by acknowledgement 2013 is the best world cup we've ever had in terms of reach and profit mm-hmm. is there was no legacy and that, that if we're going to get more people interested in the sport uh, what shape will the sport be to take on those people mm. now i think sometimes we make a bit too much of that and we just expect that because everybody's watched two weeks of wimbledon and might have gone to the local park and played tennis in the immediate aftermath they're all going to join tennis clubs and yeah. britain's going to produce the next roger feather it doesn't actually ever work that way mm-hmm. so i think we need to be careful about what we expect from the world cup but i'd like to think that if a lot of kids in the northeast of england or 
if it goes to seeding, there's, there's going to be a semi-final where England play at, at Arsenal, which is a, a ground mm. that rugby league has never played at before. So if kids see that or go to that or a part of that, and it's on the the major terrestrial broadcast of the BBC over here, and they want to get involved, that they find that easy to do, mm. and that there are enough coaches and enough clubs, and that the structure of the game is such that the pathways are there. And it goes back to something we were talking about earlier that mm. a vision of the game would start with a five-year-old kid that has a rugby ball put in their hand that then has aspirations if they can to play at international level and is that pathway an opportunity there and I don't think it is at the moment because the game is too dysfunctional mm-hmm. and I don't think it's going to it's going to have that streamline once this World Cup is finished. But I'd like to think there's enough people out there that clearly would recognise the fact that, that if the World Cup has the impact, we all hope and think that it will. And bear in mind over here, it has a lot of financial government support. Mm-hmm. They want it to succeed. So going back to your point about, you know, clearly rugby league has never been the sport of the, uh, the, the moneyed and upper classes, the ruling classes, if you like. In this respect, it is. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it opens, again, windows that haven't been opened before. So I am very confident. I think, again, discussion over here has been the danger is who is going to come and play from Australia and New Zealand um, and will it be the first choice teams and the argument again is it doesn't matter because they'll be wearing the colours of Australia and New Zealand and Mm. a lot of the people who we will be attracting to watch this have no idea who the first choice Australia or New Zealand players are so if on two fronts it gives uh, maybe England the opportunity to a better opportunity to win the tournament great but remember 1995 and and, and the great split of the ARL and and what what became Super League Mm -hmm. The NRL there, you know, you only bought a half-strength team, mm. and you still won the damn thing, which I'll never forgive you for. <laughs> but the competition was fantastic, and the final was at Wembley, and thousands of people turned up and watched it, and the newspapers the next day were full of stories of daring do and uh, and bravado and all the great skills that we love and are the very essence of you know our passion and attachment to the sport. And mm. I think it can have that impact again. Uh, I, I really do. I think the tournament can be a huge success. The other part of the legacy, if you like, is we've got to announce sooner rather than later where the 2025 and the 2029 World Cups are going to be held. Yes. And there is a logic that says the people who have organised this one need to be engaged to run those now before this one finishes. Mm-hmm. Or they need to be the people that move the sport forward in the Northern Hemisphere. I absolutely am not in any way related to to, to John Dutton and people that are doing mm. such great things in the World Cup. I'm not part of the, the board of directors there, some of whom are fantastic people who um, who, who have experience in a, in a multi-sport environment and delivering the best of events. But we need to keep them in the game. You know, Sally Bolton, who was germane to 2013 being the success that it was, is now working for Wimbledon and the Lawn Tennis Association, and that is a loss mm. to rugby league. Mm. So, legacy is not just more kids playing, more people watching, more money coming in. It's more administrators of quality yeah. staying involved in the sport. Yeah, well, I mean, from afar, they have not put a foot wrong in terms of the organisation in trying circumstances. Now, Phil, we are fast running out of time, and I promise I'll let you go shortly. Before I do, though, uh, reading this essay, The Third Test, uh, reminded me of the beauty and importance of the old Lions and Kangaroo Tours, uh, playing a heap of games against all comers around the three test matches. Speaking to Ian Roberts recently, the 94 Kangaroo Tour, the final of its type really, was the highlight of his career. And of course, losing those mega tours is 
been one of the drawbacks of the aligned season since Super League became uh, more of a summer competition. Now, Phil, the following has become a bit of a hobby horse for me, so forgive me in, in advance. And listeners, I promise this is my last question on the matter that you'll ever hear from me, maybe. But Phil, I did want to ask you, I understand the consensus uh, seems to be that the transition to Super League has been a net positive for Rugby League in the UK. But has there ever been a genuine stock take of the positives and negatives? Obviously, Super League seemed to happen pretty quickly. In a flash, there was a heap of cash. There was a summer competition. It was behind a paywall. And like I mentioned, the Lions and Kangaroo Tours were never to be the same. How do you reflect? Is it possible to determine whether it has been a net positive or negative? Or are there just too many variables to make a fair judgment? I think you've got to break it up because Super League has had a history already. You know, 26 years is now enough time to look back. And again, if we're rating where the game is now compared to maybe even how it was 10 or 15 years ago, mm. there have been periods of Super League when uh, clearly it has been a massive benefit. You know, when you're getting crowds of 25,000 for Wigan St Helens and Leeds Bradford derbies, when the import of certain players have been the absolute pinnacle of, and peak of the sport. You've been getting the best players coming over here mm. rather than a lower tier of players where all of your best players are enhanced to stay in your competition rather than go to what is quite understandably a better one across the other side of the world. Um, there have been positives. Whether Super League has ever capitalised on those positives, uh, you can take the moment it kicked off in Paris, you know, mm-hmm. 17,000 people in the Charlotte Stadium. We, we hadn't dreamt of, that that could happen so quickly. And it actually, you know, we need to get away from caring about how many of those people had free tickets. It didn't matter. Mm-hmm. This was a team called Sheffield playing a team called Paris in the capital of France with a lot of people there watching that hadn't been expected. And, you know, within two years, that Parisian team, because it was set up wrong or whatever it might do, negotiations between the French Federation and the Super League authorities were never held uh, to an extent where that team could enhance the competition. It had been and gone. So I think some things have happened in the Super League era that have seen the sport in the modern day be the, be the very best version it can be of itself. And I, and I think if you look at the teams that won it in the early years, there was a turnover of teams. You know, Wigan won the first one and then you know St Helens and Bradford and, and then Leeds came into the picture. And yet you had a feeling that it really... It genuinely was open to anybody, mm. um, but no other teams won it since. And crowds are declining, and uh, television money is declining. So I, I think you can look at it and say there have been periods when there've been a net positive. There are periods, probably currently, where it's a, a net negative. A part of the fallout of that has been clearly international rugby league, which hasn't been given enough credence because the clubs have been become a voracious beast mm. to to earn enough money to keep them sustainable. Yeah. And, and that has come at the expense of international rugby league. And again, returning to your, what would be the ideal governance model, it would start with the pinnacle of international rugby league because that's where yeah. the most low-hanging fruit is. And if that means having a World Cup every fourth year, having a kangaroo or lions tour every second year, if those kangaroos and lions tours have got to change because of the number of games, that's understandable. There is absolutely no way you could have teams playing midweek over a five-week period as well as test matches at a weekend. Mm. But what you could do is say it's enshrined in a 
a three-week period, the Saturday or the Sunday of, of each weekend is a test match, but there is also a midweek game. So there are there are three games in midweek, three test matches. If you're if the Kangaroos coming here, you then go and play at least one test match in France. If you're yeah. the Lions going over to the Southern Hemisphere, you'd, have, you'd be having at least one test match against New Zealand and or but, Samoa. That might be yeah. your, your midweek game I, uh, against Samoa. So you've got a month that's tacked on to the end of the, the season that is solely about internationals and your programme has to include that and there has to be a mid, mid-season element as well whereby selection for those internationals is, is given some kind of verification. So there would be in the negative column 100% mm. the decline of international rugby league. But when we get it right, it's the biggest driver this sport has got. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right, it does kind of depend where you start the graph in terms of whether it's a, a net or a net positive or negative. The end of the Lions and Kangaroos tours that we knew is a shame, but maybe they would have changed in nature in any case due to the domestic competitions becoming more professionalised and high stakes. Yeah. From what I gather, crowds have grown with the summer game. That's a positive, but the move behind it, a TV paywall surely has more than counted that. You know, After all, crowds are measured in four and five figures while TV audiences are measured in six and seven. So for me, mainly because of the detraction of the international game, it's, it's been a net loss, but understand that most people that I've come across see it differently. I'm happy to go with the majority on this, but I just want to see more do, proof. Do you Sorry. know what's interesting as well, which again is another debate that needs to be had, is from 1995 to today, the game over here has never been richer in terms of the amount of money that has come into it. We have never seen levels of income, albeit, as you say, a lot of it broadcast income, Mm. that have been, well, 99% of it broadcast income, that have never been as high. But actually, the game has nothing to show for it. And some of the administrators responsible for that need to be culpable. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't want to try labour my earlier point. You know, maybe... It comes back to the fact that kind of at the mercy of circumstances outside our control in many readings of that time when Super League arrived in the UK, there wasn't much of a, a choice. The game was skint and needed cash desperately and the game didn't have much room to be able to negotiate terms. So I guess it obviously happened all very quickly and they were kind of swept up in it. And yeah, these days, yeah, while there is more money in it, these days and ever before all professional sports have more money than they ever have before and the the rich are getting richer and the gap is getting larger and larger sports broadcast companies are are focusing more and more on the big sports like football in europe and worrying less and less about other sports so it it is a kind of dangerous time but um anyway we we could we could uh, go on and on and talk all day clearly feel we could uh, but we need to call it a day, and as as time has done what it does. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us about uh, this important and much admired book. After all this time, still provoking thought and conversation, and honestly, feel so glad uh, you could share your reflections on it with us today. Can I leave you with one sentence? Yes, from absolutely. That I think possibly sums up the conversation that we've had, and how indeed we could have it for at least another three weeks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It's from his chapter entitled Small Worlds. Mm -hmm. 
and he says, I am most fully aware how very complex is my allegiance to rugby league, embodying not only a certain preference in athletic skills, but the way and the where and from what I was reared, the history of the British class system and persistent cultural differences between North and South. And basically, that is the epitome of this book, the debate that we've had, mm. and hopefully the debate that will go on in the future ad nauseam as we all strive to make the sport the very best it can be absolutely that's a a perfect way to finish phil kaplan go well and thank you for joining the progressive rugby league podcast it's been an absolute pleasure progressive rugby league A super fellow is Phil Kaplan, deep thinker and an extremely generous man. Look, like I said at the top, this is our 13th book club episode and I hope there's a bunch more to come. Rugby league books are just the best. In case you're interested, these are the books we've covered in rough order of release. Mike Rylance's The Forbidden Game, seminal, powerful. Steve Mascord's Touchstones, mixing rugby league with rock and roll, yes please. Gavin Willis's No Helmets Required, a bonkers story, a rollicking ride. Gav battling his way through long COVID. Hope you're getting through, mate. Andrew Marmot's Their Finest Hour, a splendid look on some of the great Rugby League World Cup moments. James Oddie's True Professional, the story of Clive Sullivan, a beautiful walk through the life and times of one of the greats. Mike Rance again with The Struggle and the Daring, the sequel to The Forbidden Game. Perfectly captures the French Rugby League spirit, warts and all, and may even be better than the original, if that is possible. Tony Hannon's Underdogs, funny, eye-opening, insightful, and absolute classic of the genre. Patrick Skeen's The Big O, The Life and Times of Olsen Filipina, simply outstanding storytelling. Alisi Tatafu and David Riley's Rise of the To'a with illustration by Sikamanu, using the inspiring story of the Tonga National Rugby League team to get kids reading. Yes! Joe Gorman's Heartland, How Rugby League Explains Queensland. Incredible insight, a thoroughly deserved award winner, won the Premier's Prize in the Sunshine State. Tony Collins's Rugby League of People's History, a gift to the rugby league world. Thank you, Tony. Hunter Fujak's Code Wars answers the call for a genuine analysis in Australia's unique football landscape that goes beyond feel and vibe. A great achievement, a real thought provoker. And of course today, Jeffrey Morehouse's At The George and other essays on rugby league. Thanks again. Phil Kaplan. Okay, time for a cuppa, or maybe a wander. I wonder if I can combine both while I work that out until we next cross paths somewhere in the Rugby League section of your local library, Rugby League Hobby. And see ya!